0: Hello, my dear friends. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Love Service Wisdom with myself, Marissa Rada In this episode, I'm in conversation with Dr. Chantal Thomas. She is a PhD clinical psychologist who is also the executive clinical director of The Manor, a substance abuse treatment center in Wisconsin. And also, someone who is conducting psychedelic research. She's worked with MAPS and is trained in their protocol for MDMA and has worked with the MDMA trials and is also now working on psilocybin, psychedelic mushroom trials for the treatment of depression and anxiety and a whole slew of mental health disorders. I don't know exactly which one of those, I'm not going to say that's what she's researching, but psilocybin has been shown to help with such things. So she's on the forefront. She's a pioneer conducting the research as well as holding space and doing the work with clients through her work at the Manor and elsewhere. And I met her through the Polaris Insight Center training that I did there this fall of 2020 for ketamine-assisted therapy, which she is also in that field and doing that work as well. So again, like I said, she's just deeply embedded in uh, some of the cutting edge work with within the mental health sphere. And you'll learn all about her as we talk. You can find more about her and her offerings if you go to discoverthemanor.com. And yeah. I think that you'll really enjoy it. One of the most interesting things we got into that I've continued to think about since this conversation was this idea of the pandemic as a medicine journey itself, which is wasn't her idea, but it was an idea that she heard that we then discussed because it um, sparked something in her as then it did in me. And I think it will in you also. And whew, the pandemic as a psychedelic journey, Yeah. Hold that one for a second. Psychedelic journey. So much is happening now around the world with psychedelics and they're kind of rebutting into collective consciousness. And it's so fascinating that it's happening at this moment in time. And of course, I would say not an accident or not just a coincidence that the pandemic and this global crisis and the breaking down of systems and the, and the opportunity to rebuild systems is happening in parallel with receiving now in a collective way, the tool of psychedelics. So where that might go, I do not know, but I do hold a vision of hope. I was just graced with the opportunity to be a facilitator at the Enthea Wheel weekend at Esalen and Big Sur. The Entheo Wheels dream this weekend was to bridge together the ceremony and science of psilocybin, the indigenous roots and indigenous leaders who had a seat at the table with modern science and scientists who were also there. And just getting back, that was just a couple of days ago. It was a four-day event. I was able to offer somatic body-based practices for prep and for integration and also as a way to be more informed in your journey through the gateway of your body, exploring consciousness through also the felt experience of the wisdom that the body is revealing to you. Lots more to talk about on that topic. It's so fascinating to me. So that's just to say, so much is happening and I'm really grateful to um, just help educate, whether that's through myself or through Other folks like Chantal and her work or whoever might come through this podcast, there's so much we can all learn from each other. And in in my experience thus far, it feels like a learning, helping, supportive networking environment. And I just love that. I love working in collaboration versus competition. And there were so many wonderful people there at Esalen this weekend for the Enthea Wheel. I just wanna give a big shout out and debt of thanks to Dream Bullock for her work in creating it and all of the folks that held the space there. It was live streamed as well as done in person and that hybrid model is a new one and difficult and uh, it wasn't without flaws, but I think it all happened relatively well for everyone involved. And, you know, we're still in the online world quite a bit. Things haven't opened up. We aren't meeting in person like we used to quite yet. I know I'm not anyways. And so I'm going to lead a training coming up here in a couple weeks, May 14th through 16th. It's Friday night, Saturday and Sunday on Bhakti Yoga, the path of love and devotion, which is one of my favorite paths of yoga, opening the heart through, uh, joy and reverence and presence. And that's going to be online. So if anyone is interested in learning about bhakti yoga and this path of devotion, you could join me. You could join me from wherever you are in the world. If you go to my website, Marissa Radha, R-A-D-H-A, and that's Marissa with one S, M-A-R-I-S-A, Radha, dot com. There's a a tab with events, and there's the information about the Bhakti Yoga training. If you are again curious about that, you certainly don't have to be a versed yogi to join in. It's open for anybody, and it's gonna feel really, really, really good. I'm my all my energetic sights are turned towards that now that I've got the Anthea Wheel project at this point in time behind me, and. I think that's all about, that's it, folks, for my little intro for you in this conversation with Chantal. I asked her right before we started recording how you pronounced her name, which I got correct. And then when I went to record, I got a little flustered. So we start with me feeling like I'm overthinking things, but we get through it. We get through it in a great way. And she, again, is just an absolute joy to talk with. So I look forward to more and sharing more with all of you about these new worlds, new sciences, new ways of being. I hope you all enjoy. Much love. Well, welcome, doctor. Now I'm going to get it all wrong. You won't say shame to get like it all I wrong. Much. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I was just about to. Dr. Chantal Thomas.
1: Oh, beautiful.
0: Gen- <laughs> Chan- Let's do it again. Chantel. That's not it. Chantal. Now it's overthought.
1: Yeah. You can say it at the end when it's not so much pressure. <laughs> yes. Dr. Chantal I'm really Tha- grateful. I, I say it. Dr. Chantal Thomas.
0: Dr. Chantal Thomas. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Chantal Thomas. That's got a nice ring
1: together, actually. Well... I know this is probably not for viewership, but um, in France, there is a lingerie store that has probably about the same popularity, well, a similar popularity to Victoria's Secret. And the name of the store is Chantal Thomas.
0: Oh, wow. Coincidence? (laughs) Yes.
1: But it's really great (laughs) because they spell my name exactly the same way because it's a French name. And all their bras have Chantal, Chantal that's how you're supposed to say it. So if I had my drawers, I would have everyone say my name Chantal. But um, <laughs> that sounds very pretentious. But they spelled the name exactly the same as I do. And it's on all the bras. And it was kind of, <laughs> I thought, oh, this is great. My name is in- an- <laughs> Claim to fame. <laughs> my name is- Yes. Just more so for my own stuff. I was like, oh, this is, yeah, this is mine. I take it out of nice. a drawer. <laughs>
0: Beautiful. So it's agreed. It does have a ring to it. It does have a ring to mm-hmm. it. So you're
1: tuning into something there for sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, wonderful. Again, welcome Thank you to this conversation together. And uh, we were just connecting a little bit before recording and you were saying this is the first time you'll have, you'll be speaking publicly about your work with psychedelics.
1: It is. Yeah, I believe, I believe that's true because Um, my route to um, the world of working with psychedelics in the context of a therapeutic or a clinical environment has been um, a bit circuitous. It has been entirely in, it started in the research space and the clinical research space. And it was always outside of um, my other day job which what which is to be, I'm an executive clinical director of a residential treatment program. Um, and the, the company itself is called Windrose Recovery. And we have a um, residential treatment facility that is geared towards substance abuse and trauma. And I've been working as the clinical director there for four years. And then we recently opened Detox, an outpatient clinic Uh, The detox is Midwest Detox and the outpatient clinic is Winrose Counseling. And my world working in the substance abuse treatment industry did not intersect in any way with the work that I was doing with psychedelics. And um, only within the last several, um, within the last six months have those worlds started to merge a little bit. So it's, it's a very exciting time. Um, And that's because we offer ketamine-assisted psychotherapy at our outpatient clinic that is actually housed in the same location as the detox. Um, And that's at WinRose Counseling. Mm. Wow, wonderful. They are
0: merging and they were very separate branches of the tree for a long time. I'm
1: curious, your work with the research, when did that begin? Um, I would say... Well, I can, I can mark it by my the age of my oldest daughter because um, I was not pregnant when I started and became, and I was pregnant while I was going through guiding um, in a psilocybin trial at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So I had the opportunity to be part of the very first psychedelic clinical trial. Uh, it was actually a pharmacokinetic study that was looking at the safety of um, psilocybin and high dose psilocybin. And it was the first psychedelic uh, research trial to happen at the University of Wisconsin. Um, that was like 14. Oh, I'm sorry. 16? Six years ago. My oldest daughter is six. So okay. I, sta- okay. I started um, with that work when I guess it would be seven years ago. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And when you say high dose psilocybin, what was that dose or doses? What's the range there that's clinically considered high dose.
1: So a lot of trials will work with 25 milligrams. They do dose per kilogram. Um, they do it by weight in some instances, and then they just do a straight dosage amount, but 25 would mm. be considered a moderate dose. And I believe I have to double check exactly. Cause it's been quite some time, but I think we were working with 20, 30 and 40. Um so we did 3 sessions with psilocybin mm-hmm. for um quote unquote normals so they didn't have a psychiatric diagnosis and they were not naive to um uh psychedelic medicine of you know they had had a prior psychedelic experiences um and that study was just purely looking at the safety of psilocybin um just from a physiological standpoint And I guess on on another level of psychological standpoint that people could tolerate it safely in a supportive environment, um, which is an important study for psilocybin in the research world, um, just to give folks um, a little bit more confidence that they could um, work with that medicine in a dosing range that could be considered safe with a certain type of population.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm curious with... And the, the conversation of like normals using psychedelics or psychedelic therapy, it's interesting because it feels like now you need to be diagnosed in order to receive the medicine.
1: It's a very interesting part of this. Um, yeah, the, the space and how things are evolving and what it means to use it clinically. And ketamine is really our only um, proxy for what that looks like. As we look at um, psilocybin potentially and MDMA, um, MDMA is the farthest along in that endeavor in in getting to um, distribution and being able to be prescribed legally. Um, I guess in some states psilocybin is already there, which is interesting um, because that's recently happened. yeah, th- this is such an interesting time for working with these medicines and such an interesting juncture of, of how we've arrived in terms of, you know, the underground work that has happened with this for years and years and years and um, the important distinction of people who have simply had experience with psychedelics and people have used versus people who have used psychedelics for the purpose of gaining insight and understanding or using it in a facilitated space where someone is working to therapeutically guide them and most critically support them in integration following the experience. Um, I think those are all really important distinctions um, mm. for conversation. Um, and it's gonna be interesting to see how things evolve. and You know, the the idea that you need a diagnosis in order to receive the treatment doesn't feel as strange to me because as a psychologist, I've been navigating that, um, you know, as as therapy providers, if you want to go see a therapist yourself and you want insurance to cover it, they have to find a way to diagnose you. (laughs) So there's these... um, Diagnostic codes that exist um, that are, you know, talking about a generalized way of talking about sub diagnostic threshold of a collection of symptoms that cause you distress, mm-hmm. um, such as anxiety otherwise specified. Or I think that's probably the most common.
0: Right. And, you know, the word normal, what does that even mean? Right. Like, who in some ways doesn't have some type of complex trauma? that they're dealing with, whether they're conscious or unconscious of it.
1: Yeah, so that's my bias, of course. And um, and the idea that the work of personal growth and evolution should always exist as an option for people and it should, in, in a perfect scenario, insurance sees that as a necessary and um, endorsable um, treatment for people to avoid them going into a bigger crisis, um, as a protective mechanism. And, you know, when in doubt, I guess there's the old adjustment disorder (laughs) diagnosis as well, (laughs) because I mean, essentially everyone on some level could, could qualify at this juncture. If you look at the backdrop of the last year, You know the struggles Mm -hmm. and adjusting, and and that is that doesn't have a timeline. It doesn't have an end to it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and bringing that up this past year in the pandemic and COVID and all the things that all of us have gone through as a collective trauma, and that that's paralleled with this explosion in psychedelics. Isn't that interesting? That these are both occurring at the same time. It's super
1: fascinating and yeah it's very interesting. you know, um I have a friend and colleague that I met actually at the ketamine training that I went through with um the ketamine psychotherapy um, Phil Wolfson and his colleagues have a ketamine training that they are just actually yeah. now starting back up again
0: i was I was signed up for that one last April. Oh you to were. take it
1: mm-hmm. yeah, so they have a new one that they're just actually getting ready to launch um a training for late spring, early summer. So that's exciting. Um, but I was able to go through a training in Boulder um, and I met- That was their
0: five-day training?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That-
0: that's the one I was going to do.
1: Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It was, it was so you- an amazing experience. And um, I met a number of people there, made some really lovely connections. And Craig Salerno is one of the individuals that I met there, who's a therapist in practice and does cap work in Boulder, Colorado. Um, And he was on a podcast where he spoke about this time, and this was several months ago, but I thought it was really extraordinary because he paralleled the pandemic circumstances as exactly what a medicine journey is for many people. And the idea that There's this necessity for disruption and there is also um, in many circumstances, the moving into darkness and really looking at the shadow experience um, of what's happening internally and that the, and also this Mm. feature of not knowing if it's ever going to end while you're in it. And um, all of those being necessary components for the transformative outcome. And that was the first time that I heard someone speak about this time that actually made me feel really hopeful.
0: Yeah. I'm sitting here just nodding my head because I love it. I've never put those two together in that way, but I can see it and it feels true in my own life for sure. Yeah. For sure. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 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 Okay. So then it's like slowly the medicine's tapering off Mm -hmm. and we're all in this phase where we're really tender and raw and gentle and vulnerable and open and exposed. And the possibilities are now presented. And then as we see, like you mentioned, integration is so important. Mm -hmm. There's a strong pull to kind of forget and just go back to normal. When are things going to get back to normal? Or how do we make changes and what does that look like? And what are the practices for integrating the way of being that we had a felt experience of whatever that might have looked like in the medicine journey or through COVID? Wow.
1: I love that so much. Yeah. It's really great. Just saying it again, it makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck because there's something that feels so true about it. Um, And resonantly so like One of the coolest things about working in this space and working with these medicines is the, the idea of tapping into the noetic experience. Mm -hmm. So the thing that feels deeply true, like deeper than any thought you've ever had um, that's been generated from your quote unquote intellect, but this sense of knowing something to be true in the deepest way that it feels as obvious as the sky is blue and it has this really resonant quality that kind of reverberates inside of you. And when I heard him say it in that way, I was like, oh yeah, that is true. That's what, you know, that's part of what's happening, at least for me. Um, And it really helped me to um, also in parallel process, when I, you know, working as a treatment provider running a program, feeling really responsible for the clients that we take care of and also for all the staff that work for, for us. Um, I remember in the initial stages of COVID, um, feeling super dysregulated on a nervous system level and just being very aware of of my own physiology, essentially sending signals of fight or flight. <laughs> And looking around the treatment center because because we were considered an essential service, we all went into work. I mean, we didn't do anything remotely. Mm. And so um, I remember having a moment at work where I could just, I felt like I had had, not a big coffee drinker, but I felt like I had drank like three pots of coffee every day. That was just like the feeling, this jittery kind of, um, overdrive feeling. And I remember watching the clients walk out of group and they looked so calm and just in their process and thinking, why aren't they freaking out? (laughs) Like why, why, you know, you just kind of like you were like, like like you felt like you were. Yeah. I I thought, well, a big psychosocial stressor on top of all the other factors that led them into treatment and this thing they had no control over and they had no sense of how it was going to play out and as, as none of us did. And just having this deep kind of aha realization, oh, um, when you are in the throes, this is one idea when you are in the throes Mm -hmm. of a self-destructive, potentially life-threatening condition, navigating substances that could kill you at any moment, and you cannot imagine, and you're being faced all the time with the question of how could you possibly live your life without this thing? And how could all of the things that you're used to and everything that matters to you, that's paired with that thing, the idea of it going away, and you still having a life worth living. I mean, that's essentially what everybody has had to do in some way with this pandemic is, I can't imagine my life if I can't travel, I can't imagine in my life if I can't be with my friends, I can't, you know, fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. And when we looked internally to say like, well, well, for how long, like how long, and no one had an answer, That is the orientation that people live inside when they're trying to get sober, all the time.
0: Yeah, so they're conditioned in a way to be used to it. Like, like their the the word power is coming up. Like their Mm -hmm. sense of power and control has already been stripped which is it seems like what i witnessed most people struggle with when the pandemic began was their sense of surety.
1: Mhm. Mm-hmm. So so then so then that kind of coupled with listening. I remember I was listening. I was driving home when i listened to that podcast that Craig did. And then also having another moment when i was driving into work and saying to myself, like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I don't know if I can lead this program and all of my employees and support a safe space for people, you know, kind of having my own self-doubt and questioning. And then I had this moment where it occurred to me, oh, this is the thing that you're, this is what you tell people all the time. Like, this is the work. Like, how do you dig in in the face of uncertainty and trust that the discomfort you're experiencing will give rise to a deeper level of insight and understanding. And how do you not fight it? How do you surrender to it? How do you see this as a pathway through? How do you use this as an opportunity to learn more deeply about where you're capable and where you're not capable? How do you you ask for help when you feel like you can't do it. I mean, I was being faced with the thing that I always work with clients with. And when they would say the pain is too much or I'm just afraid that it'll never end or it won't. And I said, you know, I would get an enthusiasm and say, yeah, that's the work. That's the work, you're in it. And it occurred to me, (laughs) oh, do I really believe that? Because right now it's happening. And can I actually like... Do I believe it? Do I really believe it while it's happening to me? And yeah. I mean it was it was a pivotal shift for me because it became this way to really challenge the authenticity of my whole belief about what growth and evolution and feelings and being emotionally connected was about. I mean, our entire theoretical uh, lens at the work we do is we go with you into the darkest place and we sit alongside of you. And we- But you're
0: still on the outside. Like it's still from that clinical point of view. And for here, you were experiencing it. At the same it now time. now became you. Yeah. Yes. In parallel. Awesome. Wow. What an initiation of of like- into a new way of being for yourself, your own depth of understanding.
1: Yeah, and the the sneaky thing about, you know, what you tell yourself is, is I was absolutely certain that I kind of embodied that as much as possible. And it wasn't until I really wasn't certain if it would end that i that I really started to panic a little bit. And then again, it was always, it of course was, um, the illusion that I had some control over it, which was, you know, that's always my growth edge, which is perpetually recognizing what I don't have control over. And then I forget. And then I can come back to it and, and, oh wait, I don't have control over that.
0: Mm-hmm. How is it feeling for you now? Cause it seems as if we went through that deep phase of letting go of control and not knowing and uncertainty. And it feels like it's, things are solidifying again Mm -hmm. and plans are being made again. And we're all talking about like, you know, the ketamine training in Mm -hmm. the fall, like, well, that's going to happen now in the fall and Mm -hmm. we're all the stakes are being put in the ground. Mm -hmm. So how does that, does that, what does that feel like for you? Does that feel true? Does it still feel um, nebulous in a way? It's like one foot in one foot out. That's a good
1: question. The other thing that, you know, cause I did an episode pretty recently with two other therapists about this. And I also recognize that as much as I can learn to tolerate the space and believe that it, it will provide an opportunity for transformation. It's also not the same thing of allowing yourself to really dip in emotionally to what it felt like. That's a different thing. And I still hold a very tenuous relationship with the the emotional experience of this time, because there's a part of me that feels um, th- that that requires a little containment because there's still so much we don't know, and so I don't I don't even really allow myself like I don't feel like I can drop in and really process it because it's still going. Mm. And I, I, I mean, I think it's important to do it still. And I think many people have found ways to do it, but just based on what I know about myself and the amount of responsibility I feel like I carry, um, I have found that the way this is showing up for me in terms of how does it manifest inside of me is what you were speaking to, which is recognizing that I'm more in a more tender spot that my access to vulnerability just feels um, like there's less walls there. And, And so I allow, what I've allowed myself to do is to not be afraid of that and allow myself to channel that into my work with clients. And That's
0: Yeah, That it sounds mm. like the post-medicine journey come down integration phase, but before you begin to integrate and make changes, like whatever, it's like I'm in a phase where I don't really know. Like I just learned all these things and I felt all these things, but what that then translates into the material reality, I don't know yet. And it being in that I don't know yet place I find is very valuable because we kind of want to rush through it. The tendency is to, well, what's the plan? What do you know? What'd you figure out? What'd you fix? What'd you heal? And so I don't know yet, like a percolating. Yes,
1: definitely. And this really lovely piece of, there can be a lovely piece. Believe me, I don't want to at any point in time sound like I have this, Of I navigated this with this evolution <laughs> I mean, I think probably the space where it shows up in the most, um, undesirable ways for me is unfortunately at moments in my parenting. That's probably one of the areas that I feel like has, I've struggled the most at times. Um, and I think a big piece of that is, um, just not having the same reserve, like I'm, I'm acutely aware that I am not resourced in the same way that I maybe was a year and a half ago. And- Your children were,
0: I would assume, at school or daycare, right?
1: Well, no, I mean, I've been very fortunate. Again, this is where my heart goes out to, um, I have no, I can't even allow myself to think about what parents and children have had to navigate who've been at home. We've been at home. Oh my gosh. So, you know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know. Yes, I know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we've had moments because we lost a childcare provider um, right the fall before the pandemic started. So we had more help. Um, So there was definitely, that was the other piece is there was, there was never an opportunity for help for us because we don't have family in the Midwest and we didn't Well, for most people where
0: the grandparents extended family were help, they could no longer be help because we had to isolate.
1: Yes. So everybody had that experience, right? And we were very fortunate, but I'm saying even with our kids, thankfully going to a really small little Montessori school that never closed down they had to drastically reduce the classroom size. And because our kids were little, we were actually really fortunate in a lot of ways because their world didn't get rocked quite in the same way that kids who went to school or teenagers, adolescents did. What I'm just talking about is my level of patience and um, just that in the background, humming stressor of uncertainty and kind of just shouldering that and being aware of that wore me down in a way that just didn't allow me to feel as resilient in my parenting. And somehow I felt in a lot of ways, I felt even better as the clinician. Like I felt like I dropped into Mm -hmm. a pocket that allowed me to channel that vulnerability. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I struggled to find it with my kids at times. Which was really challenging. is still challenging for me. Um, uh, the so patience
0: that it requires to parents, especially two little ones.
1: The patience and, and even
0: I, for us that are high functioning, right? Yes. So you put that on top of it too. Like you have lots of skills and lots of self awareness and are well supported in tons of ways, and it's still really hard. And yeah, you, which, because of the rest of your life, you've been so worn down. Sometimes it is the kids that again, then get like angry mom. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> even sometimes the only place you can be angry is when you're like, no. Well,
1: and I would find I would do really, really well until eight o'clock. And if I didn't get them in bed by eight o'clock, anything that was over that line, I just lost all bandwidth for. So... um But back to the point you were saying, the kind of the come down of a journey and this idea of not putting things to language too quickly, being a really important part of the settling and the reorienting. Yeah. I love that you drew that parallel because I do, there is a piece of that for me, for sure. I don't want to even try and put it to language yet because I still don't know what it is and I don't know what it's going to be. So I don't even know how to speak to it other than saying, I figured out a couple things that I had to do to be okay. And one of those was figuring out how to move my body. I figured out very soon early on that I had to exercise or do yoga. I started doing yoga again. I had lost sight of it for a long time with my girls. Um, And that, and then I, and then I realized, okay, that has to be a part of my life. That's not a, not a negotiable. Like I will not make it through this without losing it in some way, <laughs> just trying to avoid like having the puddle mess melt down in the middle of a staff mm-hmm.
0: meeting. Mm-hmm. Which you as a clinician and your work with trauma, I think, you know, that, right? Like you have to be in and move the body yes, and move the energy in the body, whether you're like in a yoga practice, most of the time, you're not consciously psychoanalyzing the energetic release. It's just important that it happens. Yes. Yeah. To self-regulate the nervous system.
1: Yes. That was really clear. And I'm a biofeedback practitioner as well. So I, um, I have the fortune, I was fortunate to be aware of you know in dialogue around the nervous system and and understand you know the pieces of regulation that come through breath and diaphragmatic breathing. I know that's not the only place lots of people have that awareness, thank goodness. But me very specifically I taught people how to breathe in order to enhance parasympathetic and in order to decrease sympathetic arousal, so I knew that. So breath and being aware of my breath and using my breath in that way and then exercising really regularly and i think the last piece of it was not pretending that i wasn't being impacted.
0: Mm.
1: That was the that was the other piece was letting my staff know that i was feeling it not not trying to posture into a space of knowing that it didn't exist as best I could. And, um, and then this piece of how do we use this to make meaning even before we really understand what it is, how does this become a way to make meaning of and allow for a deeper connection in the work that we're doing? Because, you know, there's a number of therapists at our facility That are not in recovery, they have no frame of reference for what a journey of attempting to be sober would even look like. And I saw this as okay, this is the moment that we all get to dip into this space, whether we like it or not, to have a re to heighten and have a much deeper level of compassion for what that journey might feel like, not exactly but at least a touchstone into it so that the work we do becomes even more authentic Mm -hmm. and that we can reach people in a different way.
0: Yeah. And what I'm hearing too in all of that is like how in a journey there are these new ways of being that evolve through them. And it sounds like for yourself, even as a executive director, you have a new way of being a leader that's more mm-hmm. honest and more vulnerable and more grounded and more connected. And because of the pandemic, it forced you to expose that and lead in that way. And now you'll probably continue to. Yeah. And wouldn't that be amazing?
1: Absolutely. And, yeah, you know, we developed a new like staff supervision group. We added a group that didn't exist because of this. And, um, I was able to really reflect a little bit more deeply on the ways that I hadn't shown up for my staff. The way that I wanted to, I was able to put into words the ways in which my sense of pressure to have a program that, you know, that I was really proud of that I felt like did what we intended to do for our clients. I think my drive to make sure that we're doing everything we possibly can overshadowed my sensitivity to what our clinicians were having to navigate at times. And I think I I allowed myself to believe as long as all of it was in the service of providing better care for our clients that I could justify not being as tuned in to what the experience was of the providers that work there. And I was able to give language to that and and take ownership of it, because I think, um, my hope is that I don't know i I still wouldn't know in many ways if I'm totally accomplishing it that that the community that we provide for each other in that work is feels as safe as possible mm. because. Yeah. Because there's so much uncertainty. I remember thinking there's so much uncertainty, there's so much we have to navigate. and people are struggling in such unique ways. I mean, I, it, it's never lost on me that we all went through it. And um, and yet we all didn't experience it in the same way. People profoundly experienced it in ways that other people were not nearly as impacted by. And I thought, if we don't grow towards each other during this time, we're gonna all fall apart. I mean, I don't think we can do this work. It's already hard enough work. It's demanding enough. It's vulnerability inducing We have to grow towards each other. I, I need to figure out a way to, to make it safe to grow towards each other or else we're, we're not gonna make it. And you did. I'm hoping so, no one's left. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the awareness piece is
0: the most important. I mean, you shared not when on the recording, but you have your own podcast around blind spots, right? Yeah. So you recognize that blind mm-hmm. spot. And then as soon as you could see it, now you know. Mm-hmm. And again, that's often what a psychedelic journey gives us is an empathic experience or a, like a higher vision experience, a deeper knowing. Yeah. And then you can do something, but you can't until you see it yeah, or f- and feel it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then in the work of integration, how do you maintain, how do you maintain that? How do you create a landing space in inside yourself that allows you to continue to bring that work forward and not just rely on the fact that you, you had it that you had that mm-hmm. moment of awareness, right? How do you, what's the discipline of creating and supporting and tending to and nurturing that shift? Otherwise it just, you know, it's a momentary flow that ebbs back into the rhythm of your everyday life cycle and the opportunity is missed. Mm-hmm. So
0: what would you say are your kind of t- keys for nurturing something that's you've brought new life to?
1: Well, I think I think articulating it to those around you is a really important piece of it. The Na-
0: accountability.
1: Accountability. You have to name it, and then you have to find. Um, I have to put it in my Google calendar. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Amen. I mean, it's kind of, <laughs> I, I wish I had. I wish I had some other like more, you know, impressive integration strategy, but for me literally I think okay, how schedule it? I have to schedule it, you know? And so that awareness and that consistency, right? Awareness, consistency, accountability. I think those are those are probably pieces of it for sure.
0: Yeah, awareness, consistency, accountability, also mm-hmm. holding it in like this learner aspect. Like you don't know yet. You're creating something new. You think it's going to be this way, but oh, it actually wants to be like this. Mm -hmm. It's organic. It's alive. It changes. You make mistakes. You need help. You need to recalibrate.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: You're living on the frontier of something that isn't, it hasn't been, so you don't know it. Yes you're creating it as you go. And that just yet requires that uh, ability, the necessity to shift. Like you plant a seed in the ground and you think the flower will have five petals, but it's gonna have 10.
1: Yeah, and where do you plant the seed? Do you plant it inside where you're responsible for watering it or do you plant it outside where you'll get some help? (laughs) And was it the type of plant that will survive without being watered for long periods of time? You know, I mean, there's all these pieces, Mm. there's all these subtleties to what nurturance to thrive and grow looks like. And it's different for different plants, it's different Mm -hmm. for different people. In different
0: seasons? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And like this time now of spring, it's, you know, collectively the metaphor is planting seeds. And within that, it's for me personally, it still is that energy of not knowing. Like I'm not harvesting yet. I'm not taking the pumpkins that are like, this is what it looks like and here Mm -hmm. it is and Mm -hmm. I'll use it. I don't know what what the fruition will bring. Mm -hmm. And I have to allow myself, this is my personal process, to not try to create a form prematurely Mm-hmm. or define the form prematurely because I the tendency is to want to. Well,
1: so, and this is what's so amazing about doing this work, working with psychedelics, because like what you just literally articulated is a very big part of the mantra that you are trying to support people in integrating with ketamine in particular. I think it's also the case with MDMA. Um, and undoubtedly with psilocybin too, but it's different with each one of them. And and the the only medicine that I've had the opportunity to work with outside of a clinical research space has been ketamine, which was really interesting for me because, in full transparency, I thought about working with ketamine because it was the only thing that was available to use, you know, above ground. Um, but it I was worried about working with the medicine because i I was worried that you know some people will describe it as very um cold. It can be very cold and weird. Like it's a weird medicine. And that um, that it so the signature that people talk about with MDMA is it's heart opening. Like that's the description. And wouldn't
0: you say that ketamine though has other descriptors that aren't just cold and weird?
1: No, totally. I this is this is just I'm telling you the first pass through it at, at it. Because because yeah. what will have like, look, when we when we did that training, um people had drastically different experiences too. It was really interesting to see how much variability because a, a component of it was experiential, which was really helpful in some ways. But Um, you know, some, I think one person in the room said, I was in a situation that normally would have been terrifying, but I didn't feel scared.
0: Yeah. That's the benefit I speak to when I talk Mm -hmm. to clients and Mm -hmm. patients about ketamine. Mm -hmm. That's one of the highest ranked benefits in my mind.
1: So it's a very interesting medicine. And yet you know, with my experience, one of my experiences with, I've also seen people come out of experiences that feel just really creepy and odd and um, meaning seemingly meaningless. I think the interesting thing about working with ketamine is the um, the way that you prepare someone to enter the space and the preparation for how to approach the space and the way to integrate it. I think there, and this is of course, just biased by my lens in the very limited amount of experience that I have with it. I've been working with it since last November and seeing, you know, doing a couple sessions a week um, is that what you bring set and setting we know is important with every single medicine that you work with. I mean, that is something that, you know, has come through more and more, but I I have had the very wonderful surprise of most people that I've worked with with ketamine have found it to be an incredibly connecting and a very relational medicine for them in a lot of ways, which I didn't anticipate. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't anticipate how relational it could be. And of course, like I'm very motivated for things that are relational because our whole treatment philosophy is from an attachment lens Mm -hmm. and at our, you know, at our program, we believe I won't get the name of the person who had this quote I'll look it up. Um, relational trauma heals through relational repair. Like if the disruption or the fragmentation that happened was in the context of a relational abandonment, the only thing that will on some level heal it is through, you know, a relational repair. And I was really, I'm very interested in that work. And I just, I just have been really heartened and enthused by, um, how gentle and tender and lovely the experiences have been for a lot of the clients that we've worked with. And, um, I wonder if that has to do with your particular set and setting. I, I, I have to believe on some level it might, and we're pretty unique in that we do quite a bit more low dose work than, Mm from what I've heard of other folks. I mean, we don't even really offer IM at this point um, or IV. And the thing I'm most interested in is using ketamine, um, using it in the psycholytic space, in the trance space, if you will, um, as a way to get to know other parts of a person's internal system makeup. And so um, the clients that we treat at the manor, that's the name of the residential facility, are very often really bright, very successful in some way, and very, um, very unaware of what it is that's stuck. Like, what however they've compartmentalized their damaged um a damage that has occurred to them or a woundedness that has occurred to him, them they have they have cased it off so masterfully that most of the treatment is trying to convince them that something is there <laughs> and it's <laughs> I've it's seen, seen that like, it's really an interesting population to work with and that's why I first started to have conversations with Aber, who is our CEO about, you know, my other life in the psychedelic space, you know, doing it in a clinical research capacity. I, what started happening is as I was sitting in the treatment center, I kept saying like, oh, wow, this would be amazing if we could bring in something that could shine a light or help someone understand what is um, not being seen or spoken to. Um, if you go the internal family systems, Dick Schwartz wrote route. what we're talking about is exile parts, like parts that have been so cordoned off or protected that they, you just don't even have access to them. And, um, I was actually just reading something about the inner world of trauma that that's kind of hinged around the archetypal ideas of Jung and this idea of very primitive, um, defense of like an inner part that knows really well how to protect the most vulnerable part from ever being seen. So this concept of parts language is also a really big part of our program Mm
0: -hmm. and that- I'm curious in the work then with ketamine, when you have these awarenesses and you're on low dose, it sounds like sublingual or trochees, as the therapist, are you then guiding and asking questions and
1: probing in a way? So the way we work, we don't really probe unless there is, um, well, we check in about how someone is navigating the space. And I would say if someone's silent for more than 20 minutes, we'll check in and just say, how are you? You know, what are you noticing? Mm-hmm. The, the frame that we use for working with ketamine is very much influenced by how I was trained to work with MDMA through the MAPS work. So I um, am fortunate. My husband and I are both psychologists. We are the, um, there's, I believe there's 12 sites um, for the MAPS trial that's going on right now, the FDA trial. And, um, we are the only, tri- we are the only site in the Midwest and it's just the two of us. Um, and we, you know, through the work we did with psilocybin, um, we were really lucky to, to be trained by some of the folks from Johns Hopkins came out to UW and trained us to work with psilocybin from that lens. So we had that kind of training experience, mm-hmm. Bill Richards, et cetera, and company, Mary Casimano, and then through that, we made a connection. Actually, Karen Cooper um, was involved in that work and she's now relocated to Colorado and is actually involved with the CIS company. She introduced us to Rick Doblin and he was willing to let my husband and I come on board as guides, therapists to, to become part of the MAPS training. And this was... Um, well, so it must've been four years ago because I was pregnant with my second daughter when I went through that training. Cause I remember they had a, um, a breath work component that I was debating whether or not to do while I was pregnant. And I ultimately did end up doing it. But um, so we had the really fortunate opportunity to be trained with the MAPS lens for working with, within that space. And it's quite different from the um, the training I was exposed to from the folks from John Hopkins. Um, And so the way that I work with ketamine and the way that my colleague, Dr. Camerasalt, Todd Camerasalt, and he and I are doing it together um, is very much informed by how I was trained to work with um, individuals who are um, having an MDMA assisted journey. The, you know, the obvious very big difference is that, um, the length of time is compacted because a ketamine journey, mm-hmm. if you're doing lozenges, is just much shorter. And well,
0: describe that um, process for those that don't know what that would look like in comparison.
1: Um, so, because I think
0: for most people, the question that comes up is like, "Are you talking or not
1: talking?" Oh, sure, sure. In the ketamine session, what what yeah. does that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we will start out by, and, and I was definitely influenced in how we thought about this work as well by the folks at Polaris for sure. Um, Eric and Harvey and Veronica, who, you know, I went through the Polaris modules as well, who incidentally were Eric, yeah. Harvey and Veronica were also part of the maps group when we trained, you know, mm-hmm. however many years ago, four years ago. So yeah. And that's how
0: we connected was I did the modules this fall also. hmm Yeah.
1: Yeah. So they're, they're all really lovely, talented clinicians who've been trained um, through the MAPS program as well. So, so we are, you know, we have ongoing opportunities to connect through various MAPS related work. Um, But in terms of the actual session, so we do um, an intake and then which usually takes about two hours. It's, it's a psychologist and a psychiatrist together doing the intake. And then we do preparation sessions, and depending on um, how how much we anticipate someone will understand the space or have a frame of reference for the ketamine space, the the number of preparation sessions can vary. But a big part of it is trying to understand what is the person's relationship with control and trying and their reliance on their kind of intellect to figure things out very quickly. Um, so that's a big piece of it is doing a lot of preparation work for getting buy-in around the idea that a non-linear experience would be useful and how, and kind of reassuring the part of them that wants answers and results right away, reassuring that part of them that that, that it's going to come in a different route. It's going to come at a different intensity. It's going to come in a different, um, you know the timeline on it is going to be different than you may anticipate, and we don't know what that is. And emphasizing that most traumatic patterns or attachments or reactivity in relationship to others and relationship to self happen in a nonverbal space, and so um, this medicine is is for many people very nonverbal medicine because it really, even the way that you're working with language when you're in that space is just very different because, um, there's not a coherent story that's happening in ketamine the way that it does with psilocybin even, or with MDMA. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, there's a, in that way, um, you know, MDMA is a really lovely medicine to work with as far as I, I've i experienced and appreciated working with it in the clinical trials is that it um, it, it really supports a story unfolding and, and people can feel that in their bodies. And, and sometimes that can be very somatically manifesting, but it's really a story that unfolds that, ha- that allows people to re-experience or go back to things in a different way there's a spaciousness that opens. And that's not to say that that MDMA work is not non-linear. It's absolutely nonlinear, But like the king of non-linearity of the three of them, I think is ketamine. Like I think, um, because for some people, they'll just get bizarre shapes or geometric patterns or they'll yeah. get nothing at all. And it you won't be- You weren't
0: wrong in describing it as weird. I had a client yeah. say that just yesterday in session.
1: Yeah. I check. What medicine? are you noticing? It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird medicine, right? Mm-hmm. And it kind of turns um, alterations in perception and reality on their head. And it's like it. Requ- so, in that sense, I feel like for people who are very very wedded to reality as it exists in their everyday mind, they need a lot of support trusting that space. A lot of support. And so yeah. that's, and, and from my vantage point, then it comes down to trust and everyone that I work with who has some sort of relational trauma element on some level, really trust no one. They don't trust themselves and they don't trust anyone else. Mm. And so why on earth would they trust that space? doesn't make any sense. So that's that's our philosophy about going kind of low and slow with people is giving them familiarity with the space so that they start to have an you know a capacity to orient in a way that doesn't feel even if it's not a scary experience it can still feel like a very untrustworthy experience like you in what you'll have what you'll notice with a lot of people is they they find themselves going on a journey a non-linear journey. And then there's a part of them that's watching it and going, what is this? Like, what is going on? Like what, that's weird. Is this, am I doing this right? You know, so there's this whole, there's this narrative of that part. And so some of what we do is work with that part in that space. And we encourage people to say like, what are you noticing? You know, how do you feel about it? And maybe we might have a dialogue with that part in that Mm. space um, encouraging people to say like, um, well, tell me what, what, you know, what, what part of you is feeling critical right now, or, you know, they might say Mm. something that gives us an indication of it. So then you can kind of work with that part in a different way Mm -hmm. in that space. Um, some of it is just reassuring them. You don't have to make sense of it right now. Can you just let yourself be open to it? Can you be curious? The whole purpose of what we're doing is about curiosity, because as most people know work with medicines, curiosity just opens the range of what's possible in that space. Whereas if someone starts to get really eager, or quick to figure it out, they and they start getting very judgy of the experience, it narrows it. Now, that being said, if someone is just in a place of judgment or fear or worry, they're doing it wrong, that's okay too. We can work with that. So now we just work with that part and in it, and what it's doing in that space. And we just give it time. Mm. Um, and maybe in that instance, if it keeps coming up, you would say, okay, well, can you ask that part of you, what you think, what it's afraid of, or can you ask that part, what would it need to let go? And so you can kind of work with, um, what I have found really interesting about working with ketamine in this way is it just makes you aware of parts that haven't been articulated in the regular therapy space. They finally get to have more voice and whatever impression management thing that someone is doing in a regular therapy session falls away because ketamine disrupts it in some way. And so now you get to really see like... um. I I worked with someone that I had who is, you know, most of the clients we work with are, they, they survive pretty well and are quite functional in lots of areas. But the place where they feel the most vulnerable or wounded or whatever it is, is so well hidden, like we were speaking about before. But what the ketamine space is, it just brings it forward with a different level of intensity. And so you just get to see, And then what's really interesting with dose escalation is you get to see how long it holds on for and what that battle is like. And sometimes people will have really freeing experiences at lower doses. And then they have like this rubber band effect where whatever vulnerability came from that freedom makes the system kind of um, boomerang. And then and the next dose, even if you escalate, they're more shut down and more stuck than they were the dose before. You know, before mm-hmm. They double so you, down. They double the down. So you, you get to learn about the system and you get to learn about their system and what does it mean? And what's the reactivity look like? And in that shutdown phase, what does it look like? And so then you may have a whole session that's just about stuckness mm-hmm. or, and we are really careful to emphasize that that's not a failed session. That's a really amazing opportunity to learn more about that part of them and to learn more about their protection and to learn more about um, why has this part of you never come into our conscious work because we know it's there all the time and so why has it never been articulated until now so then we get to have a more integrated coherent picture of the person in all parts of them. And then that's the work of integration is, okay, so what does this mean now that you know this and how do you make sense of what happened? Um, and for for a certain subset of people, the ketamine space is just about allowing pleasure or allowing the experience of feeling good or allowing a certain kind of fun. And that's, that's what I love in particular about this medicine and my work with it so far is, I mean, it really feels incredibly hard to predict what is going to happen. You can't. It's it's really, really an amazing part of the work. It's a very exciting part of it. It's not lost on me that that is a bit of a scary thing for folks who are doing it. However, the flexibility around dosing and, and your, if your agenda is to go kind of slowly with people, we haven't had a single person who's had a terrifying experience yet. I know that that happens for people, but I, my goal in the psychedelic space is how to really adapt to what's needed based on what the person has the capacity for and to not presume that they need to show up for the medicine. And I think sometimes um, it's gotten flipped in a lot of spaces where it's like- let me pr- what?
0: They need to show up for the medicine.
1: Well, a good example would be like, so the, the psilocybin um, training that I've gone through historically has been like, trust, let go, be open. Just trust the medicine, trust okay. the medicine, trust the process. Yep. What if you can't do that?
0: Hmm. Mm, okay. So like you just described, there can be resistance in the process and that's just as valuable.
1: And, and what I would say, I would change it and I would say protection. protection. So it's not resistance, it's protection. Yeah. And when we call it resistance, what a person is left with is, and why on earth would someone trust that space? If they have a history of relational betrayal, rejection, abandonment, it's, it would be really terrifying. And, and I believe what's happening in this movement is going to have really exciting implications across the board, but it also has medicine journeys can be incredibly traumatic for people too. And I think one great way to set a person up is to really prep them to surrender to a process that they are not capable of surrendering to. And so if you, and, and I'm not to say that you that you don't philosophically want to offer that. And for many people, it works and they can do it. They can let go in the right way and, or the medicine kind of forces them to let go in a certain kind of way, depending on what medicine you're doing. But what people tell themselves about their struggle matters. Yeah. And what they say about, if they feel like they had this opportunity, they didn't show up in the right way it can be really traumatic and it can allow them to feel like there's something fundamentally wrong with them and why couldn't they do what was needed to show up for the medicine. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there's an intelligence to that person's system. And when we try and just blast it open with medicine, I think there's implications for that. I think there's really serious implications for that. And that's one of my biggest fears about, um, I shouldn't say fear, but one of the things I'm watching with great curiosity is how that's going to manifest on a, on a bigger scale and um, the enthusiasm with which people look for um, really big experiences with this medicine and medicine work. And and they miss the more subtle parts of the preparation and journey that come from working with the various levels of protection that lead up to that, then when you simply overwhelm the the system by a really big experience, what are the implications for that? And, you know, I'm a very big fan of somatic experiencing, um, that has had a really big impact on how I like to think about working with clients. We have a practitioner who's just incredible, Tammy who works at our program and the idea, and then also being very influenced by the, you know, the Mapsian model, which is essentially, um, there's an intelligence to what their system can tolerate and you work within the frame of that intelligence and you do not try and push past it ever because it doesn't fundamentally allow anything that structurally needs to reorganize to actually organize if it if it doesn't feel like they always have a choice about what's happening.
0: Right. And when you go slowly, there's a consciousness to it. They're, they're, they're part of the process.
1: There is an intentionality that critically relies on their being part of that process, yeah. which for me feels... Extraordinarily reparative and corrective when they feel like they didn't have choices before, where they felt like, how could it be possible that I would know what I need in this moment? Mm. And then so you have this really interesting reworking of learning to trust themselves and learning to trust their body and starting to believe that there is an intelligence within this system that will guide them and Um, it is, it has been beautiful to watch unfold. Absolutely. Like, I mean, I, I feel myself becoming emotional in most sessions now, granted, we'd also talk about COVID and I feel a little more raw, but I will tell you that the ketamine we've been very fortunate from the start of it. Um, we've been able to do in-person sessions because we have access to rapid testing um, in our clinic. And the amount of restoration I felt in doing this work during this time also, like just being part of someone's experience in that way was so powerfully restorative for me because there's nothing more humbling and almost awe-inspiring than watching someone connect to their own resource and like recognizing what is inside of them and trusting starting to trust themselves and starting to trust their feelings because in my work with this space it's actually been very emotional for people and that was another thing I wasn't quite so sure about. Like I didn't know what would happen with it. And I knew I knew people were having transformative amazing experiences with ketamine but I didn't know how many tender moments would happen with it. And I have just been floored by the tenderness of the medicine in the context of a relational space. And so, um, I don't move to interpret anything in the moment for people at all. They might say something. I'll be like, what are you noticing? And we'll say, Can you be with that sensation? Can you just be with that sensation without trying to figure it out? Can you just be curious about it? Um, And so the whole time they're navigating, maybe something bizarre comes up and maybe they're like, what is this? What is, you know, like, and we'll say, you know, can you just be curious? You can describe it. We'll write it down for you. They're always aware of our presence. It's very rare that they completely leave the room. So, um, and some people it's, it's a more active dialogue, one of the coolest things that I've seen come from working at this level and this dosing range is watching the way, the moments at which people will ask for support or help has been really cool to watch. So someone may have an experience where they feel like they're being trapped or being held underneath something. They know we're in the room. We They know that we're right there, but they won't ask for help or it will never occur to them that they can get out from under what that thing is. And then that becomes this amazing thing to work with. Like, because you knew something was happening. Did it feel comfortable? No, it was really, I actually couldn't breathe at one point. And then we work with, okay, so what is, where are the other touch points for that in your life? And what do we think this represents? And, um, did it ever occur to you to ask for help or did it ever occur to you to say, you know? Because so we tell people use your body as much as you want. For some people, that's the other really cool thing I've seen happen is like moving their bodies has have allowed them to energetically shift things in a really powerful and poignant way. And again, it's very hard to predict for some people that's really important for other people. It's not at all. Um, so we're just kind of, we're very attentively watching the space we're making them aware of their choices. We're encouraging them not to overinterpret, and we're inter- encouraging them to move towards, if they choose, um, things that they're curious about, but always reminding them about the fact that there's a choice there. Um, and then the other really interesting thing is, is kind of watching the dosing range and you know kind of tempering someone's enthusiasm to have a breakthrough and like slowing them down. Mm. And so
0: then what range are you working with? I know it's weight you know, dependent but
1: Yeah. It's a, almost always we start with 100.
0: Uh-huh. And then um 100 to
1: 200 250 and in, in some circumstances we've gone up to 3 before, but when you get up to 300 it really takes people a long time to recover. Yeah. Um, we often will do hybrid dosing. So we'll do one lozenge to test out how they're tolerating the space. And then we'll do, we'll offer another half of a one after the first one is dissolved. Mm. Um, again, it's a a really gentle path in, um, and so, and, and, kind of like letting people kind of watch what's happening and kind of supporting them in that way to kind of get a, a sense for it. And um, yeah, it's it's just been a really extraordinary thing. And um, we also space out the sessions a fair amount too. Like in the beginning, we were going with a lot of regularity like every week, but based on the way that we work, we've discovered that, um, having at least a couple weeks in between, or even at three weeks in between is really good because if they're um, really trying to integrate the experience, I feel at least at this stage with the people we've worked with so far, um, we want to have them just like really rediscover how things have shifted and kind of pay attention to that and give that time and space. And again, it's emphasizing this isn't a quick process. This isn't like a, um, yeah, whatever system organized itself in your body, in your psyche, in your mind, and is is there for a reason. So we're really gonna work at the pace that's required in order to allow that system to shift in a meaningful, like kind of a methodical way.
0: Mm Well, you are just a wealth of wisdom and experience and insights. <laughs> it's really invaluable to hear from you. It really, really is. Oh, it
1: really is. That's very, it's very sweet to hear you say that. And I realize that like what I know I feel is, is so dwarfed in comparison with, with what there is. Again, what, what I don't know and what I'm learning and what I continue to learn from the people that I work with. It's just been um, a very humbling Uh, journey, but it's also been incredibly heartening to be able to be, I think that's the last, maybe the last piece that I'll speak to is to allow yourself to be a resource for someone when they're in that kind of vulnerability seems to really create this amazing, um, lay an amazing pathway of what it means to be supported for people who have not had the experience of being able to be safely supported in a, a period of vulnerability and even the act of putting a handout. I mean, th- this has happened multiple times. Just the act of putting a handout to be held is monumental in terms of saying, I need, I need you here. I need support here. And for many clients it can take up to four sessions before they'll allow themselves to do it. They've been thinking it the whole time, but mm. they haven't allowed it. Mm-hmm. Um, these little moments that seem like, oh, that seems really small, but like, no, it's really big.
0: Very big. And what they
1: learn about themselves in that context. And that's why I'm very excited to kind of, you know, our goal is to integrate it into the other work that we're doing and to really, I see a really interesting pathway for bringing it into a residential setting down the road um, because this fundamental piece of, um, what we're doing in our treatment center all the time is helping people understand the value and the power of moving into vulnerability and the extraordinary resource that comes from giving permission to ask for help because almost every single person we treat struggles in asking for help, even in the midst of being surrounded by staff all the time, 24-7, that That. I need help on this. I need, you know, that is a really hard skill for people to develop. And in a recovery journey, when you're fighting to become sober, it is the difference of life or death, whether or not you make it and whether or not the experience of asking for help will result in an answer that actually feels like relief. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Like what an amazing thing to re um to land in someone's system that when I ask for help and it is met with compassion, that it actually provides me relief.
0: A monumental experience.
1: It's really cool.
0: Mm. Yeah. Thank it's you really for cool. creating spaces for so many to to have that to have that ability to ask for help in a safe way. I mean, it requires a high level of integrity, openness, safety, trust, that whole set and setting piece as you named before, but also just your, the experiences you've gone through within your own life to educate yourself Mm -hmm. because you care.
1: It's nice to hear you. It's a, it's a very nice compliment and, and it's, it's so funny because like my first reflex is like, it's so, it feels strange to be thanked for it because it feels so much bigger than me. Uh, I'm not trying to sound grandiose, but I feel like I'm part of something that's, that's bigger than me. That doesn't even necessarily come from me. It's just, can I show up for the moment that's created, you know? And you are, Um, and you are, like you said before, it's, it's,
0: how can we learn to support each other? And the movement is bigger than you and you're mm-hmm. an important part of it.
1: Yeah. Thank you.
0: Yeah. It's been an honor. It's been so wonderful to talk with you. It's been yeah. so great. And I'll put links, you know, to where people can find you in the centers, mm-hmm. in the show notes. But is there anything now that you'd like to share of where people can find you or your work? Oh,
1: sure. Yeah. So we're located in um, Wisconsin, and um, our residential treatment facility is um, is about forty five minutes from Milwaukee. And the website for that is discover the manor dot com. Um, but, but I know you'll put links in, so that's fine. And then our other um, our detox is located in Brookfield, Wisconsin, which is about 30 minutes from our residential program. And then where we're doing the ketamine assisted psychotherapy is in the same clinic. So um, yeah, it's, it's such a fun and exciting thing to be in this pocket of, of the country because Wisconsin is just a very interesting place. I live in Madison and um, it's, it's really neat to connect with other practitioners and part of what has been really amazing about being in this space is just being with other people across the country who have a kind of a like, like-minded lens. And um, so it's been really, really neat. Uh, Cause, because there's not a lot of us out here yet. I mean, I'm sure of course that's changing. That will be changing, no doubt, but it's, it's exciting to be on kind of the frontier of, of bringing it to people. It's been really an amazing journey.
0: Yeah, you are. You are, right at the spear tip. Yes. Yeah. So thank you again for your time. Yeah, thank you for this pleasure. conversation. I've enjoyed yes. it so much. I feel like Likewise. I've learned so much just from listening to you and Yeah, I love it it's unusual for me like within the Polaris community. It feels mm. just so um friendly. The practitioners together, which I think I didn't quite anticipate, you know, in some realms Mm -hmm. there's a feeling of mine, Mm -hmm. I'm doing it right. You're doing it wrong. And it, I don't get that at all in this work. I haven't come across it yet. And that's so beautiful.
1: Yeah. It's really, yeah, they have a lovely thing going on and I just have nothing but really deep levels of respect and admiration for Harvey and Veronica and Eric um, and you know Greg, they've done you know just some amazing work and and the training that they're kind of putting forward is is such a lovely energy in the space and the way they've created this online community has mm-hmm. just been incredible mm-hmm. and um, it's very heartening because it it really feels like it should be that way and when energetically the idea of competition um, or even kind of the idea of, um, you know, really big companies getting involved in this work, you know, um, the idea of, you know, being traded on the market and, and kind of valuations. And, you know, I think everybody gets very nervous around that for understandable reasons, but the sense of community. And I think this other really beautiful piece of, um, so many clinicians that I've come across and I've had this experience myself. And also I know that Todd that I work with has also, it's like, it reminds you why you went into the work of helping people. It's like, oh yeah, this was, this is at its essence really catalyzes the feeling of why I did this work. Mm -hmm. Like it somehow protects and galvanizes the way to be present for someone and hold space for them in a way that just, energetically like um, intensifies and renews your purpose in supporting people, which is why I also have a real interest in looking at this work in the context of um, being protective for burnout for providers mm. because I actually think that's a that's a really interesting space that that needs to be explored in in light of what's happened over this last year
0: mm. Mm. yeah, that's an interesting. Insight and angle as well, another possibility. I love that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Thank you again. And um, it's my pleasure.
1: I look forward to more. Yeah. Cool. It's lovely talking with you.